Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. I am your host and your good friend, Christopher Rawl. Please go and sign up for my newsletter. It is free. It is easy. All you do is go to www.chrisrawl.com. You click the subscribe button. You put your email in. It's easy as hell. You haven't done it yet. Go and do it. Every Wednesday morning, you'll get a little piece of writing. Hopefully, it will bring a little ray of sunshine into your life and enlighten you in a way that you previously weren't. So go and do that. And now, let us talk about abstract theory in basketball. Playoffs are underway, and we are moving on to today's episode. A discussion of how much one player can impact a specific side of the ball. The playoffs are underway in the NBA. It's been roughly a week. I am into some of the stuff, namely Boston against Brooklyn. That series has been incredible through two games. And other stuff I've watched with varying levels of interest. Now, before we get into things, I want to say I'm recording this before Thursday night's games. And that's fine because today I'm not here to talk about results and who won and who lost and what adjustments need to be made. I want to talk more about abstract theory uh, because that's what I really like doing within the world of sports. And I think there's a very interesting discussion that is occurring in the context of the NBA playoffs that I think is leaving out a lot of the nuance that comes with all of the varying different things within each individual playoff series. So For obvious reasons, because the playoffs have just begun, I've been talking a lot recently about the differences between the regular season and the playoffs. That's been the last two shows. It will tie in to today's show. It will presumably tie in through the future because there's a lot of things that come to the forefront in the playoffs that don't necessarily exist within the regular season, or if they do, with not as much prominence. Uh, And there's one area that we're going to start with today that I haven't addressed that is very important in the NBA, way, way, way more so in the postseason. It is the willingness of teams to play small, okay? Small ball, it's the great word of the last decade-ish. I think the Warriors are the ones who really popularized it, but I would go back to LeBron and the Heat, say, that's a small ball lineup as we know it. Now, (laughs) To be clear, small ball is kind of a misnomer because the greatest small ball lineups of all time, they all possess size. So rather than hear that word and think of just small people jetting around the court, when you hear the word small ball, think of it more of it's the elimination of any plotting presence on the court for your team. Uh, Think of what Memphis did in game two against the Minnesota Timberwolves a couple nights ago. Steven Adams starts the game. Steven Adams, he has skills in certain ways. He's also a very big plotting gentleman. And they start him. He plays three minutes in that game. And Memphis really leans into what is a strength of their roster. Depth, that helps in the regular season. But depth and versatility, which really helps in this postseason setting. Because then they go, all right, our starting center, get him out. Uh, He's a big who serves a very specific purpose in the regular season. But... In the wrong matchup, that style can kind of be targeted relentlessly sometimes, depending upon the team and the matchup and the willingness of the opposing coaching staff to lean into that. Memphis, all right, Steven Adams, 
chill out for a little while because we got a bunch of people who we can throw with John Morant that are going to stress the versatile aspect of a playoff lineup. Kyle Anderson and Desmond Bain and Xavier Tillman, he's playing good in that game, and Dylan Brooks, and there's so many people that they can just throw out over and over. Brandon Clark, much less Jaron Jackson is the linchpin at the five who is really mobile for that position and has been one of the best defenders in basketball, period, throughout the course of the regular season. So we see that occur with Memphis. We understand it. We see it across the board with a lot of teams. And the first question that always comes to mind is, well, why don't teams just play more like this in the regular season? Because this is supposedly their best lineup. You want versatility. Why don't you want that in the regular season? Which is true. It's just really taxing upon the human body. That's why it's not as prominent within the regular season, but we really see teams lean in in the postseason. Uh, Everybody's kind of moving up a spot in the lineup. So you're... Shooting guard is now playing small forward. Your small forward's bumping up to power forward, so on and so forth. And you see a physical toll that that's going to take. If you normally play at the four and you're bumped up to a five, well, you're banging with the Steven Adams and Andre Jummins of the world rather than taking some of these stretch fours and going out to the perimeter and not having as much of a physical component to the game. That's why the greatest small ball lineups of all time were reserved with, I mean, rare exceptions in certain regular season moments, but... As far as a volume of minutes, the greatest small ball lineups of all time were reserved for the playoffs. Go back to the Heatles. And you really saw that team start to manifest when they understood, oh, our biggest weapon in the playoffs is that we can bump people up the lineup. Bosh, you're to the five. LeBron, you're this hybrid, whatever the hell you are, but... Essentially, let's just put Bosch and LeBron and Wade out there. There are our three best players, and let's find a couple pieces. Early on, it was Mario Chalmers and Shane Battier. Battier, because specifically he could go and bang at the four, it took a toll on him. He's talked about that because Battier throughout his career usually played smallish forward. And with LeBron, they're like, we don't want LeBron to take the brunt of this. So, Battier, you're a good defender. You can hit wide open threes. That's incredibly key in a lineup like this. Go out there, take people who are bigger than you. Fight like hell against them, and we're going to be able to win championships like that. They did. The greatest small ball lineup of all time is the Hamptons Five with Golden State. Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, Andre Iguodala, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry. You see the same DNA built into that. You know, Kevin Durant is not a small guy at all. He's a seven-footer with as much offensive skill as you're going to find inside of a basketball player. Draymond Green is not a small dude. He might be a little bit shorter for somebody you want playing at the five, but his wingspan is the exact same as any center, and his tenaciousness and understanding of how to play defense is as good as anybody I've ever watched. Same thing with Iguodala. Go on down the list. They're small ball lineups. They're not small. You don't want these people banging against all of the big people in the regular season, but come playoff time, you're going to unlock it, and you're going to roll them out, and you're going to say, there are very few teams equipped to play against us when we have this much talent and this much versatility, and actually this much size on the court. That's why these teams were winning championships. Even the most recent Lakers championship. What do they tap into as the difference between the regular season and the playoffs? The regular season, they're rolling Dwight Howard out at the five. Big, strong, physical, can eat up some minutes, can catch some lobs, pull down rebounds. Most importantly, take the physical wear and tear that comes at playing the five in the NBA. Playoff time, when we really need it. Anthony Davis, I know you consider yourself a power forward or a small forward or whatever the hell you consider yourself, 
but he doesn't want to play center. He's been very vocal about that throughout his career. And Vogel's going, he, there's a time and a place that we need that. To AD's credit, with, throughout that run, he said, okay, cool. I'll play there. In the Battier role, we have Markeith Morris. He can come in and bang at the four. LeBron, Caldwell Pope, Caruso, Kuzma, pick your poison of who you want within that. But we saw the ability to just completely swamp opponents, especially on the defensive side of the ball, using that combination. That's why small ball has become so popular. This is how teams win championships. You get the very best small ball lineups that do possess size. You don't have to play them in the regular season. And in the postseason, you rely upon them. So again... You don't want all of these people, specifically a lot of these stars that I mentioned. You do not want them taking the physical punishment of this small ball approach in the regular season. But in the playoffs, these types of lineups are a cheat code. Not a lot of teams are equipped to combat the style of basketball with that talent playing the basketball. Now, we got a bunch of teams in these playoffs that do possess varying degrees of really successful small ball lineups. Look at the Suns or the Celtics or the Bucks or the Heat or Golden State or Memphis or Brooklyn. There's a lot of teams, because this has become popularized, that possess this capability in the 2022 playoffs. It's a reason that I take all of these, again, to varying degrees, but I take all of those teams seriously. You know, versatility is key. A lot of what last week was about on this show. Combination of size and mobility in basketball on offense and on defense. It's the recipe for winning a championship. Recent Lakers, recent Warriors, recent Heat. However, not everybody has this luxury. And this is where we start getting into the more theoretical side. The side that I think is just getting blown out to see because we love dealing with absolutes. Team A won and Team B lost. And so we can draw really, really intense conclusions simply based upon that fact. And it trickles down to the individual level. Team A lost and was led by player A. Well, now we can say all these nice things about them. Team B lost and player B lost. Well, let's just dig his grave and shovel him into it and bury him 60 under. There's not a lot of nuance to how certain things are approached within the world of sports. So now I rewind to last year's playoffs because I think it's the correct place to start for this abstract theory. It's game six. Utah Jazz, LA Clippers. I've talked about it before. I've talked, I will talk about it again. It's a really just depressing moment in the history of the Utah Jazz franchise. Now, the Clippers, partially out of necessity because Kawhi Leonard has been injured, partially because Ty Lue knows what he's doing and I think understands that small ball, if you can do it correctly, will really stress certain teams. He saw that as the coach with Cleveland and LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love. He downshifts the Clippers shelve Zubots, their starting center. They go all in on small ball. It's the reason that in a closeout game, they roar back from 25 down in the second half. They got the versatile players out there. Your Paul George, your Terrence Mann, your Marcus Morris, your Reggie Jackson. They just give Utah fits. And, and for that Jazz team, not that they needed it because they'd had a reminder the year prior, but it was another reminder. How deadly it can be for a team that can only play offense or only play defense one way. An absence of versatility, okay? For the Jazz, it was, we have one good defender on our roster. His name's Rudy Gobert. We play defense in one way. It's called drop coverage. When they come up with a high pick and roll, Rudy Gobert wants to drop. He wants to stay close to the rim because he's one of the best rim protectors ever. 
and he understands we don't have any perimeter defense and my team is just going to allow a constant barrage of people funneled towards me and it's my job to prevent that. That works in the regular season against a lot less small ball style approaches. In the postseason, really the last two years, but you can even extend it some back to the Nugget series. It's just been a, a barrage. It's been a complete obliteration of Utah's defensive structure. It's Gobert into drop coverage, crucified between the key and the corner three. This unwinnable situation for him. Defender or perimeter defender gets blown by. He has to choose between his man that's stuck in the corner. If he leaves it, he's going to be wide open. If he doesn't leave it, it's going to be a wide open layup. What do you choose there, right? So the Jazz, they tuck their tail between their legs. They go home in the offseason. And, and I think that the Jazz are going to address this because I understand it. You understand it. Your damn pet understands it. Your kitty cat sitting at home going, yeah, this is just not a tenable strategy. He needs some help here. And their big signing of the offseason for this specific aspect of roster building is Rudy Gay. Wah, wah, right? I like it a little bit at the time because I go, okay, your head's in the right place, but this guy is old as hell. He's never really been known as much of a defender. He is bigger and more versatile than what you have currently on your roster, which is a lot of non-versatile pieces, but still, as the season has progressed, and especially now into the playoffs where Rudy Gay is getting DNP coaches' decisions, it's just not done anything for their roster. So... <laughs> We're back where we started. Deja vu. Game two against the Mavericks. Again, the Jazz and the Mavericks are playing tonight. What occurs in that game is not relevant to today's discussion. Okay. Again, I want to talk about the theory behind this. So game two occurs against the Mavericks. Deja vu against about as scrubby of a small ball unit as you're going to find. No offense to Dallas, but you take Luka off that roster. And I look at these units they're trotting out, especially down the stretch of game two. And I'm going, all right, Jalen Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie and Dorian Finney-Smith and Maxi Klee, but I mean, okay. I mean, all of these pieces individually, I'm not here to say you're atrocious basketball players, but you look at it as a unit and you go, that's not something I should really fear in any way, shape, or form, especially if I have aspirations for trying to win a title. But Utah gets bombed out of the building down the stretch, and their defensive flaws, that rigidity, that lack of perimeter defense, they once again manifest the same as they did in a little bit different ways against Denver two years ago in the playoffs when Murray's torching them in virtually identical ways as they were a year ago with the Clippers bombing them out with small ball and now with Dallas in game two. So the discussion coming out was first deja vu. What the hell are the Jazz doing? All that stuff. All that's justified. The part that I find myself now in my own deja vu of is this what we're taking away from this? is a completely different discussion. It's the theoretical side. It leads me into one of my favorite soapboxes. It's the role of situation and how that reflects on a player. And just kind of our inability to really confront these two things and how they work together logically. So I want to read a quote from Rudy Gobert. <clears throat> the person who's stuck in this situation that I look at and go, that's not winnable. And this comes from earlier in the season, strangely enough. Uh, he was talking to Tim Bontemps of ESPN. It was before the Jazz were playing the Celtics on March 23rd. There was a lot of discussion at this time about the Defensive Player of the Year race, which we now know Marcus Smart has won on Boston. They're talking about 
guard value versus center value versus wing value, how all of that stuff works, how it works in the regular season, how it works versus the playoffs. Just kind of all of the theoretical side of this stuff, which I do really, really like. And so Gobert says something to Bontemps at the time that I think is pertinent in today's uh, world of discussing individual value and the role of situation. So this is Gobert talking about just defensive impact. I think small ball impacts who has the most impact on their team. There's a lot of very good guards, very good defensive guards. It can be hard sometimes for people to understand, but when I come into the game, I'm worried about the team. I think sometimes we get too focused on the individual matchup, end quote. So I don't disagree with what is being said within here, including that first part, which is you look at and you go, well, doesn't this reflect upon you, Gobert? If small ball impacts, who has the most impact on their team? and small ball is able to completely obliterate the Jazz, does that not reflect upon Gobert as a defensive player? That's first where my mind goes. But then my second part, as we're parsing this, goes to what he's talking about in the middle, where he goes, I don't think a lot of people understand, but when I come into the game, I'm worried about the team, which I also do understand and agree with as it pertains to Gobert on the Jazz. So this is where we get into what I think is really interesting discussion. It's a little more abstract. And as we do this, I don't want everybody who's listening to think about who is better than who. Is Rudy Gobert better than Draymond Green? Or is Marcus Smart better than Bam Adebayo? Or is Mikel Bridges better than whatever player? I want to think about this more as just an abstract idea. Because I think there's a very interesting discussion to be had right now about how much one person can impact a specific side of the ball. And again, the role of situation within that dynamic. Because Rudy Gobert on defense, he's the easy punching bag. A lot of people like to just piss on him, whether that's players, whether that's uh, fans. There's a lot of people who don't necessarily like him for a couple of reasons I understand and most that I really don't. But where I come back to with him, especially the last two years, because the it's never been easier to just rain on the Jazz's parade and specifically go, how can this guy be so valuable on defense? Look at them against the Clippers in game six. Look at them against the Mavericks in game two. And I say, well, what would you have him do in this situation? The Jazz have constructed a roster that has nobody on it that is good at defense. Rudy Gobert is the backbone of that. At the same time, he is one player. And as we know, as we've talked about for the last 20-ish minutes, teams are going to downshift and play basketball in a different manner in the postseason than they do in the regular season if they are equipped with that personnel. Now, I'll readily admit, there is definitely a conversation to be had about the Jazz's style of strategy and specifically the style of strategy that you probably need to employ if you have a Rudy Gobert style of player on your roster, a less mobile rim protector as the anchor of your defense. Does that work in 2022? I think that is a very interesting discussion. I don't think it's yes. I don't think it's no. I think there's a lot of gray area within that. In an ideal world, what would you have? You would have the Hamptons five. You would have LeBron and Wade and Bosch. You would have AD and LeBron and other defenders and people who can knock down open threes. Very few teams are going to have that collection of talent on their roster. So at that point, if you're trying to construct a team that can theoretically win a championship, is this a viable strategy? 
Do you want that on your roster? These are a lot of questions that are kind of hard to answer. Where I get a little bit frustrated as we walk down this path of individual impact on one specific side of the ball. And everybody goes, well, you can't win playing like this. Look at the Jazz. You can't win with this style of rim protection in 2022. They're just obliterated by it. And I go, ah, I'm going to pump the brakes a little bit on that. It's not the ideal strategy. I, I will guarantee that much. But can you win with that? I'm willing to engage with a lot of things as winnable. And in defense of this style of player, again, think of it as an abstract. But also, if you want to use a hard example, let's talk Rudy. I don't think we actually know how targetable he is in the playoffs via small ball because he's never played with good defensive players. This is something that just gets booted out into the atmosphere as Rudy is caught between the key and the corner. And it just looks so dumb and so easy for the opposition. And Maxi Kleba's hitting a thousand threes and Terrence Mann's hitting a thousand threes. We don't actually know about this style of play at its very best in 2022. If you took the best rim protector, Rudy Gobert, and you actually gave him talent on defense and people who could fend off the point of attack significantly better than what I watched in game six against the Clippers or in game two. I mean, just this morning, I was watching some of the more highlights just to refresh my memory of game two. And if you want to have your stomach turn over and then vomit profusely over and over, just go back and watch the perimeter defense that came from a variety of players in that fourth quarter of game two, whether it was Conley, who looks like he's 313 years old, whether it was Donovan Mitchell, who looks completely disinterested in giving even one ounce of effort on the defensive side of the ball, especially at the point of attack. If it's Jordan Clarkson, who I think wants to give a little bit more energy, but just seems completely oblivious as to how to move his feet and stay in front of a man, or Boyan Bogdanovich, who does not possess anywhere near the foot speed to stay in front of even lower level guards like Dinwiddie and Brunson, much less higher end ones like a Jamal Murray or much less the highest end like a Chris Paul or a Devin Booker who could be looming in the next round. You look at all of that and I go, this strategy doesn't work because of the personnel. I'm not sure if this strategy can work, but I'm not willing to say it cannot work in 2022 simply because the Jazz are getting roasted by Denver and by the Clippers and by the Mavericks. Separating bad defense from a good defender. How do you do it? How do you do it, right? Defense is a hard side of the ball to understand. Even for me, a person who watches a lot. I'm not a coach. Like, And, and every quote I ever read or, or every podcast I ever listen to talking about this particular thing, coaches are just like, nobody really understands the assignments except for the team themselves. I could give you windows into certain things, but there are other things that's just like, this guy could look like a total dumbass, and it's because of his teammate. It's because of his teammates. Five people work as a unit on the defensive side of the ball, and there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. To bring an example into play, I watched game two of Brooklyn-Boston. And the second half of that game, I mean, I can't describe how into watching the Boston Celtics defense I currently am. It is the most riveting thing in basketball right now for me. And it's just... Defenders and a unit that's on a string and they understand space and switching and they all, not all, but the majority of them possess just this innate understanding of how to play defense, which very few people do. So you see them completely 
shut down Durant and Irving in the second half. It's the best defense I've ever seen a team play against Kevin Durant. That second half, if you go and watch it or you did, Stan Van Gundy mentioned it in the fourth quarter. And I was saying that out loud to myself. I was watching it by myself and I'm going, I've never seen anybody or any team because it was more of a team effort rather than just Tatum at the point of attack. But I've never seen a team play Kevin Durant this well. He's 0 for 10 in that half. He's turning it over left and right. And it was just this barrage of Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Al Horford and Daniel Tice and somehow Peyton Pritchard, just all these Grant Williams had a great game on the offensive side, but he was still doing things on defense. It was a team that understood defense has to encompass everybody on the court. It's really easy to watch when I'm watching Boston. And I can really respect and understand the individual talents of all those people. Marcus Smart, the defensive player of the year, I understand why he's good at defense. I understood how he's good at defense. Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, same thing. But when you start to pluck people off of that, and I'll use Marcus Smart as the example because he's the defensive player of the year, and I'm not totally opposed to that. I think you can make a case for a lot of people. Deciding who the defensive player of the year is, it's the hardest thing on planet Earth because we don't really even know anything about defense. And so much of it is based upon your surroundings. So if we're to take this theory to its end point, I would say, well, if we plucked Marcus Smart out, who is a fantastic perimeter defender and has a great understanding of how to play defensive basketball, and we put him on a different team where he was the only good defender, much like Rudy is with the Jazz. Would anybody notice that? Would anybody notice his skills? Would anybody sit there and go, Marcus Smart, he completely transformed your defense. Marcus Smart, this style of player, this is how you win playing defense in present-day NBA. Would anybody say that? I think we're always results-based. And so if we're flip-flopping and I go, well, I don't know. I would want a small ball unit that has size and mobility and switchability. Boston is a great example. Look no further. That is how you win playing defense in the playoffs. But it's not the only way to win. And so if Rudy was surrounded with players like that, and he was the anchor of a unit that had a lot more talent on the defensive side of the ball, do I think that could win? I probably would say yes, right? In the playoffs, even against these small ball units. Because it's a different type of situation that you're putting a big in in that. It's a situation that Daniel Tice was being put in or Al Horford was being put in where their flaws are mitigated immensely by the combination of people who are at the perimeter and able to switch and able to just jab step into the key and, and, and pretend like they're going to be there and then ghost back out over and over and over to always make these players think there's more people in the key. I got to go this way. I got to go. You could see even Kyrie and Kevin Durant, who are two of the most gifted offensive players of all time. You could see the gears in their heads start to move a little bit in that second half. That's what you want out of a defense. So it's hard, again, because defense defense is defense. The great truth of the day from Chris Rall. But defense is a lot harder to understand than the other side of the ball. Because for some reason, we can do it on offense. The example I think about when, when this uh, firestorm of discussion always arises, as it inevitably does and will, I think of Steph Curry on the Warriors who is also one of the most gifted offensive players of all time and the very best shooter that I have ever seen. Now, a year ago, the Warriors, they weren't very good. By offensive rating, they had the 20th best offense in basketball. They ended up losing 
in the plan twice. They lost to the Lakers, then they lost to the Grizzlies, so they didn't make the playoffs. And a lot of that was tied into the fact they really didn't have that good of an offense. Uh, they were a pretty solid defensive team a year ago. Now, this is where I get a little bit weirded out because throughout this 2021 season, Steph Curry is celebrated, and rightfully so. I, I will I will never rain on Steph Curry's parade. So all of this matches up with what I think should be happening. During the midst of this season, where the Warriors is a team, they're 20th in offensive rating, Curry is celebrated as a generational offensive player. He's in the thick of the MVP discussion. And most importantly, and why I get a little frustrated on the defensive side of the ball, is that Curry was not judged, and again, rightfully so, he was not judged for drawing a bunch of defenders to him and giving Kelly Oubre Jr. or Kent Bazemore these wide-open threes, and they're just bricking them over and over and over. That was uh, kind of a reoccurring theme within the Golden State Warriors offense in 2021. A lot of offensive talent that could not really match even 70% of what Curry was bringing to the table. So defenses said, all right, let's just swamp him as much as we can, make someone else beat us, and other people really couldn't. And we all understand that. It was easy to see. When Kent Brazemore is bricking a bunch of wide-open threes, we go, Steph Curry's really good at offense, but this offense as a whole is not good. We can understand that on the offensive side of the ball, but not on defense. It's interesting to think about, right? And to take it a little step further, I think what helps in this particular example is the player and the skill always makes sense if we've seen it in the best possible situation. And we've seen that with Curry. Go back to the original iteration of their Warriors, the death lineup when it was Harrison Barnes there in place of Durant or the Hamptons five, which again is the most devastating lineup you'll ever find on planet earth. We've seen Curry within the framework of that. And it's so easy to understand and appreciate all of the incredible things that he brings to the table as a basketball player. And because we've seen that, we don't have to question when the Warriors are 20th in offensive rating in 2021. We don't have to question the individual because we already know this guy is a generational offensive player. And if there's a bunch of bums around him, so be it. But it doesn't really detract from how good this guy can be at basketball on the offensive side. So we understand it with Curry because we've seen it. And there's so many other people that I think are kind of lost in the cracks. And the discussion gets warped and broken because we haven't seen them in the best possible situation. It's definitely not to say that everybody is somehow going to be Steph Curry because that's not true. But it is to say, as we theorize about how can you play defense? Who is good at defense? How can you play offense? What does this player bring to the table specifically? How much impact can they have on winning in the regular season or the playoffs? Can this style of play work in the regular season or the playoffs? That's where this gets really complex. Because the flip side of the Curry coin is somebody who has not been in the best possible situation. Or indeed, if you look at someone like Gobert right now, is in probably the worst type of position for their skills, it seems a little unfair to say you cannot win playing like this because look at these examples from the last three years. And I would push back and say, well, what if Gobert has Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum as the point of attack? What then? Maybe they're not as good. Maybe they can win. I don't know. I feel pretty comfortable saying that's still going to be a damn good defense. And I think we would celebrate a lot more of what Gobert could bring in a postseason setting if that were the case. So let's go into our final thing. It's a branch off the same tree because 
we're a cursed species. I'm convinced of that. We're doomed to think like cave trolls for all of time. And that means we misinterpret situation and we don't want to understand context a lot of the times. It really never ends this path that we've gone down as a society and especially how sports are covered. So now the last thing that I want to discuss about individual impact and how much one person can affect their situation and how much the situation reflects on them. And the way that these narratives, I just, I, I sometimes cannot follow them. Nikola Jokic, who's going to be the MVP of basketball, I do believe. Again, they're playing tonight. Doesn't matter what happens in that game. It's not relevant to what I'm going to say, okay? So I'm going to read two paragraphs. They come from Sam Amick of The Athletic that I think encapsulates a lot of what is being talked about with Nikola Jokic and what a lot of fans are saying. Here we go. There are occasionally times in sports where the outcome is so extreme that the nuance simply doesn't matter anymore. And if the Nuggets get swept with Jokic assuming he wins, thereby becoming just the third of 66 MVPs to go out without a playoff win and the fifth to lose in the first round, then no one will care about how he didn't have Jamal Murray or Michael Porter Jr. alongside him. Infamy awaits, it seems, and it doesn't look like there's much he can do about it. It's no surprise the six-seed Nuggets are down in the series, of course. It was a minor miracle they went 48-34 and 34 this season, and they're now up against a third-seed Warriors team that not only got healthy at the right time, but also is seeing an all-star level ascension from young Jordan Poole. End quote. A lot to unpack here. Uh, and pretty much I disagree vehemently with everything that's being said within here. Starting with sometimes the outcome is so extreme that nuance simply doesn't matter anymore. Maybe in the most outrageous of circumstances, I think this is far from it. Because as we go on to say, uh, yeah, he didn't have Jamal Murray or Michael Porter. And yes, nobody is surprised the Nuggets are in this situation. And yes, it was a minor miracle they were 14 games over 500 this season. And yes, they are playing a Warriors team that now is healthy and is just turning into a flamethrowing version of themselves from five years ago. And so the popular thing to do is say, Jokic is getting swarmed by the Warriors. He's been frustrated. He's kicked out of game two. Draymond is doing an incredible job because, in my opinion, Draymond Green is probably the best defender I have ever seen. And Jokic is nowhere near that level that he was playing at in the regular season, which sometimes happens because of situation and because of the difference between the regular season and the postseason. This reminds me of a very familiar thing. 2007, Mavericks, Warriors, round one. One of the funnest series of all time. Dirk Nowitzki. They lose the NBA Finals the year prior against the Miami Heat. Dallas is the one seed. They're runaway. They won 60 some odd games. Everybody's expecting, okay, you guys kind of gave that finals away last year. Dwayne Wade shot a bunch of free throws. A lot of it was just tied into refing, but okay, we'll blame the Mavericks. Uh, and Dirk wins the MVP in 2007. This is your time. And funnily enough, the Warriors, who had really not popped at all during the regular season, they lean into more of a small ball style of approach. And they're going, yeah, let's get some, we got some switchable small people out here. And we got Baron Davis at the point who is this bowling ball that can really orchestrate an attack that's going to stress what Dallas wants to do. Dallas, who was very rigid and refused to play any other style of basketball other than what they wanted, which was just slow and plodding and big. And the Warriors just started 
bombing threes and running around and fast breaking. And next thing you know, Mavericks are upset in six games. Everybody made fun of Dirk at the time. I actually made fun of Dirk at the time. I'll admit that. And I go, ugh, this is, how was he the MVP? This reflects so poorly on him. And then especially over the ensuing years, it really became a referendum on Dirk as a talent. Nah, you can't win with this kind of guy. If this is your best player, this soft European shooting big who doesn't want to go and bang in the key, which we know you need in the playoffs, how is that going to work? You know, and then a handful of years later, they're winning the championship against LeBron in the Heat and Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade. And we're going, oh, yeah, this is a generational player, Dirk Nowitzki. And we now understand if he is the focal point of your offense and you surround him with players who are really smart and can pick at teams in different ways and you have a really smart coach in Rick Carlisle who knows how to utilize that, well, then they can win a championship. We now understand that. It's not this infamous season or somehow Dirk Nowitzki is never going to be good. Once the scope of his career played out, we understood, right? And we understood that there are certain times when maybe your situation is not the best for your particular skill set, which leads us into Nikola Jokic against the Warriors. Being a man on an island in the regular season and being a man on the island in the playoffs are very different things. I don't know how many different ways I can say that. You can survive in the regular season. You can win games. You can win a lot of games. LeBron with the Cleveland Cavaliers in his first stint there, they were winning over 60 games a year. And I can assure you that dude was on an island because when you got to the playoffs and you looked around and you were playing teams that were hunkered down and game planning specifically for your weaknesses, I would go, but wait, LeBron, your second best player is Booby Gibson. But wait, your second best player this year is Zyjunas Ogaskis. But wait, your second best player this year is Mo Williams. And LeBron, through sheer force of will and just incredible talent, was able to drag this team through the regular season. Just bombard teams. And it was cool, you know, Mo Williams, he's scoring 18 points a game. Is he an all-star? And then in the playoffs, when you had these teams that could really cinch down the screws, you would go, oh, Mo Williams is the furthest thing from an all-star that I could ever imagine. So is Booby. So is, say, Junas Ilgaskis. So is Anderson Vergeau. Pick any of these just random pieces floating out in the sea that LeBron was forced to play with. And that was a referendum on LeBron's career early on, as I've talked about numerous, numerous times. And then once he went to Miami, first and foremost, but then on to Cleveland, on to LA, and was surrounded with pieces that fit better, coaches that better understood how to utilize his skill set, we go, oh, maybe it's an unfair thing to ask of an individual player to just take a bunch of players that are not that good and say, everything is on you. And especially if we lose in the postseason, we're all going to say, nope, can't win with you. Nope, can't win with that style of play. Nope, can't win with that skill set. Which does not match up with what I think and what I believe. I think that if all of you are being honest and you think about this either as an abstract or any of these hard examples, I think it makes a lot of sense. This strange persecution of individual force situation and that kind of stuff, I think it makes sense. I look at the Nuggets and Jokic, and yes, he has struggled immensely. And yes, the Golden State Warriors through two games have completely tightened the screws on him. Maybe he does better tonight in game three. Maybe he doesn't. That's not relevant. 
what's relevant as I'm thinking about this is I go, the Nuggets are starting Jeff Green, for God's sakes. The dude who has bounced around to every team in the league pretty much over the last decade plus. Nobody has ever wanted him because he's not really good. I mean, that's just the whole roster, essentially. There's not a lot of people on the Nuggets roster that I want to go into a playoff series with, much less against a team as versatile and as just seasoned as a Warriors team with Curry and Thompson and Draymond Green and now accentuated by Jordan Poole. It's just not a fair ask. So we're not even a week through the NBA playoffs and I keep arriving at a familiar question. How much on either side of the ball, much less both, can I ask of one player in a team sport? Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. If you have not signed up for my newsletter, go and do it. It comes out every Wednesday morning. You can go to chrisrawl.com, click the subscribe button in the top right, put your email in, and voila, it will be there. Please go and enjoy your weekend. Watch as much stuff as possible. I will do the same, and we will be back at the start of next week to probably talk more about situation and individual impact and defense and offense and all that kind of good stuff. So peace out.